Welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I'm Lucas Stock, and this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. It's just me today. Well, it's just me from me and Jens. He had a prior engagement that prevented him from joining us today, but you don't have to just listen to me drone on. I have the privilege of getting to chat with Dr. Brad Littlejohn, the founder and president of the Davenant Institute, um, about one of Davenant one of the Davenant Institute's recent publications, um, Richard Hooker's "A Learned Discourse on Justification in Modern English." We'll talk a little bit more about this work, uh, particular as far as background, um, and then some of the details in terms of what Richard Hooker's talking about here. But first, um, I wanted to. Uh, first of all, welcome Dr. Littlejohn and also get a little bit of an introduction. Um, so like I said, Dr. Littlejohn is the founder and president of the Davenant Institute. Um, he holds a PhD from the University of Edinburgh and we are super stoked to have you on today. Thank you for your time and thank you for, um, uh, you know, agreeing to answer some of my, uh, hopefully not too nerdy questions about this text that, uh, Davenant was generous enough to, to send our way. Um, so yeah, welcome. Who are you? Give us a little background and especially for those who don't know a little background about Davenant Institute and the work that you're doing. Sure thing. Thanks for having me, Lucas. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I, yeah, I founded the Davenant Institute in, uh, 2013, uh, after finishing up my PhD on Richard Hooker at the University of Edinburgh. And uh, I basically founded the organization because I recognized as I was doing my graduate studies that there was this huge chasm between, on the one hand, the great historical, historical scholarship being done in theology in the academy and the woeful, uh, woeful ignorance in the church, both in the pews and in the pulpits, about the historic riches of the Christian tradition and especially our Protestant faith. I think uh, so many Christians in America, especially who um, try to take their faith seriously and try to engage with it as something with deep historical roots, don't feel like they find those roots within Protestantism and maybe jump ship to Rome or Orthodoxy, not realizing how much, uh, how much there is to, to, to glean from their own tradition. So, um, you know, I, I, I said there, there's, there's all these resources. Why does the church not know about them? It doesn't know about them because there's these institutional barriers uh, between the church and the academy, and we need organizations that are going to bridge that space and are going to do so in a way that is collaborative, that is interdisciplinary, and that is built on bonds of friendship and mutual trust uh, so that we see this as a a shared project of pursuing wisdom together and, and not something that's can be easily derailed by egos or um, different uh, theological hobby horses. So that's nine years, almost nine years ago now that we founded it. And uh, we've been really blessed to see how the Lord has kind of um, expanded the work and, um, you know, brought hundreds of people into our, into our network. So. Yeah, I think for for those of you listening who aren't familiar with Davenant Institute, but are familiar with with us here, there's a lot of uh, a lot to love, a lot of overlap between um, not what we're doing in the sense of scale by any mean, but but certainly um, a vision of retrieving resources that are out there 
um, that never really went anywhere, but that are just not uh, necessarily accessible or, or on people's radars, um, especially within within Protest or for Protestants and within Protestantism. So, um, yeah, one of those uh, one of the arms, I guess you could say, of that project is um, publishing, and one of the uh, things that Davenant Press is publishing is the Library of Early English Protestantism. Um, there's a few works that have been published, the most recent of which, I believe, uh, is this uh, shorter one, Richard Hooker's A Learned Discourse on Justification in Modern English. Um, so if you could maybe give me sort of an overview of um, this particular text. What is it? What is its context in terms of... Um, where it's coming from in Hooker's career, in his thinking, um, and any sort of important historical points that you think we need to have in mind before jumping into the actual content. Yeah, sure. So, you know, Richard Hooker is, to the extent that he's known at all, which isn't perhaps very much anymore, he'd be known as kind of the theologian of Anglicanism, uh, the, the John Calvin of Anglicanism, uh, sometimes called him. Uh, sort of foundational theologian for that tradition. However, you know, I try and, I mean, I, I've, sort of, I've sort of given up after years of struggling, um, but try to avoid where possible using the term Anglicanism, at least referring to this period, because it really is an anachronism. Uh, at this time, you have the Ecclesia Anglicana, the Church, the Church of England, uh, just as you have the Ecclesia Helvetica, the Church of Switzerland, the, you know, Ecclesia Germanica, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a national church, it's a regional church within international Protestantism, which is uh, certainly in the Elizabethan period, if you've got, if you're thinking in terms of Lutheran and Reformed wings of Protestantism, uh, the, the Church of England leans more toward the Reformed wing, though with certain Lutheran influences. And it hasn't really carved out an identity for itself as something as a third form of Protestantism, much less a sort of third thing between Protestantism and Catholicism, which is how some Anglicans have you know, spoken of themselves for the last century or two. Uh, so uh, it you know it'd be just as appropriate to speak of Hooker as an English Reformed theologian, uh, particularly in this work. In any case, regardless of how you parse the denominational lines and such, this little text, Learned Discourse and Justification, is really a treasure for all Protestants. It states uh, in, you know, really pithy and accessible, well, I say accessible, it's accessible in our kind of modern English rendition. Uh, it's accessible and it's always been accessible in form, but the language needed some updating. So uh, in any case, it's a very accessible treatise on the doctrine of justification by faith as mainstream of, of Reformational Protestantism, Lutheran, Reformed, Anglican has understood it. And it comes, um, it's it's published in 1612, Hooker dies in 1600, so it's published posthumously, like many of his works. Uh, it's written, or it, 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 it's based, it's a an adaptation of sermons that were delivered in 1585 and 1586. And or 15, early 1586, I believe, yeah. Um, and this is from a period where Hooker was the uh, the master of the Temple Church in London, which is one of the most important 
one of the most important, if you're, if you're going to be a bishop or, you know, archdeacon or something like that, if you're just going to be the rector of a single congregation, this is about the most important one you could be the rector of, because the temple was the, the guild of, for lawyers in London. It was where, where practicing lawyers often lived and worked and worshiped and all lawyers in training all lived sort of apprenticed under them and, and, and studied there. So it's right at like it's right across the street from the Royal Courts of Justice, um, and you can it's the Temple Church where Hooker Priest is still there in, in downtown London. So it's it's very influential. The the future uh, lawyers and lawmakers of England are sitting in the pews, and uh, and so it's a it's a very sought after appointment. It's a very politically contested appointment. And when Hooker uh, was given that pastorate in 1585 it was um after a big tug of war between kind of the more puritan wing of uh the the leadership and the more conformist sort of pro bishop wing of the leadership and uh, the 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 junior pastor there basically the reader he was called was named walter travers and he was in fact one of the most outspoken puritans uh the most outspoken Presbyterians in England at that time. He kind of is the one who wrote, he wrote the first English kind of treatise on what Presbyterian church government should look like. And since he was calling for a radical overhaul of the structure of the Church of England, he was considered a pretty dangerous figure, which is, it's kind of remarkable he had this position at all. Um, it was, you know, he was, he was well-connected and there were, there were folks friendly to the Presbyterian cause and the higher echelons of government. But he was thinking he would get a promotion to the top spot when the old guy, Richard Alvey, I think it was his name, retired. Didn't happen and because he was just too controversial a figure. And so Hooker is brought in as kind of a, a compromise candidate. So um, what's fascinating, though, is that this, this treatise sort of originates in a kind of sermon war that breaks out between Hooker and Travers. Okay, it's like you've got, you had the uh, Hooker preach the morning sermon. Travers preached the afternoon or evening sermon and, um, you know, just imagine a situation where you've got, you know, a, a high profile church and one pastor is saying something in the morning sermon and then his, his assistant is getting up in the evening and, con and delivering a refutation of him. And then the first guy is then kind of responding to that the next Sunday and then the refutation again in the evening. So this went on for several weeks uh, and was causing quite a stir. I mean, hundreds of like word got around. Hundreds of people are showing up. It's just kind of like a spectator sport watching this sort of preach off. And uh, the, it was getting very politically charged, not, bec not because the subject of the sermon itself had anything really to do with the, um, the political issues between Presbyterians and, 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 and the, the supporters of the bishops. But um, Travers was... Travers sought to frame it that way, uh, and Tra since Travers was known as kind of an outspoken Presbyterian, it kind of took on some of those dimensions. So anyway, they they shut it down. They 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 told Travers he he wasn't allowed to preach anymore until they sorted out what was going on, and then he eventually got got sacked. But from those sermons um, that Hooker's delivering, and that Travers is responding to, that's where we get the learned discourse on justification. Remarkable truly a different world in so many ways. Um, 
one of the things that really struck me reading through um, not only your introduction to this edition, but the text itself that I thought was really important, uh, especially um, for us looking back in time, so to speak, reading works like this, is the, the methodology that Richard Hooker employs in his discourse on justification. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about the significance of that methodology, maybe a little bit of, of highlights in, in terms of how Hooker is, is approaching the question of really the, the core question of what is justification? What is the, the, the Protestant doctrine of, of justification, um, especially in distinction to a Roman understanding of justification? And what can we learn from not only his conclusions, but how he, he addresses those questions? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. So um, um, I mean, the first thing to say is that what's, what's very helpful about this treatise um, is that Hooker's giving an account of the Protestant understanding of justification that does not caricature in any way the Catholic understanding. I think it's, it's it's so tempting for Protestants to explain what's distinctive about justification by saying, well, you know, Catholics believe in works righteousness, uh, you know, and they're basically Pharisaical or, or Pelagian, and Protestants believe that we're saved, you know, by faith, which means we, you know, we put our faith in Jesus and they put their faith in, in their own works. And Hooker recognizes that no serious Roman Catholic theologian is going to take that as a fair description of what, what they believe. Um, but he doesn't want to the you know the, the other extreme which i think you know can happen i think sometimes protestants grow up with that kind of caricature and then they actually start reading maybe the council of trent or, or, or catholic writings and they're like oh no actually catholics do talk about justification by faith too uh they're not that far off you know in fact we really don't disagree about anything significant it's just a semantic difference and i think what hooker gives us is an account that takes very seriously uh the need to accurately summarize what Roman Catholics believe in a way that they themselves could recognize as fair and, and nonetheless say and, and so saying actually you know we do agree about a lot and he actually goes through it we agree with them about this we agree with them about this we agree with them about this even on justification not just we agree about other things we, you know we agree about a number of points about justification but here's where we disagree and it still is quite significant so um and, and the, the crucial thing there is, is about um, imputation, about the idea of alien righteousness. And Hooker does not deny that there is a, an infused righteousness. This is the Roman Catholic language, right? That um, the righteousness is, is infused in us, actually becomes, um, that we become more righteous by the righteousness of Christ being put into us by the sacraments. Uh, Hooker agrees that that happens, but he says that is sanctifying uh, righteousness. So he, he, he maintains the classic Protestant distinction between justification and sanctification. He says there is a perfect righteousness which is outside of us that is just, justifying righteousness. There is an imperfect, incomplete righteousness which is inside of us, which is that which is sort of progressively uh, formed in us by the Spirit, by sanctification. Uh, and then there is a perfect, complete righteousness inside of us, which is that of glorification at the last day, right? So uh, justification, the, the key thing is to speak of justification needs to be bright, 
made right in the eyes of God. We can't be made right in the eyes of God based on a partial righteousness. Uh, and the only righteousness that's inherent within us in this life is a partial righteousness. So it's only on the basis of the external righteousness of Christ in which we are we are reckoned righteous on account of Christ's uh, Christ's own righteousness that we can be perfectly righteous in the eyes of God. So Hooker spells all this out. Um, there's nothing nothing new in that account if you, if you read Luther or Calvin or whatever. But it, I mean, it is, in my opinion, it's the, the clearest statement of clearest concise statement of what Protestants actually believe about justification and how it's different from what Catholics believe. And what's great about the, the text is he's not, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small little book, it's like 100 pages, but doing quite a lot. It's not only giving you that, but it's also giving you a framework for how to think about theological controversy generally, right? Uh, he wants to apply this kind of same method that he's using, saying, okay, what do we agree on? What do we disagree on? Why is that important? How is that important? Does this mean one side is Christian and the other side is not Christian? Or is this in a disagreement between Christians? He, he tries to construct a methodology for answering those questions with regard to justification, but also answering those same questions with regard to any, num any number of other doctrinal debates. And I think you, you, at the beginning, you touched on not, caric not caricaturing the opposing view, in this case, the Roman view. Um, and what, is, what do you think that through this text and, and, and also drawing on, on other um, aspects of Hooker's career and work, if, if you had to, how would you summarize Hooker's view of the Roman church, you know, in the time post-Reformation, um, or, you know, post, you know, maybe some, maybe second, third generation of the Reformation, um, when Hooker is, is writing, is preaching, and is working, is, is there, is there sort of a discernible, um, you know, core set of ideas in terms that we could characterize how Hooker is looking at this now other church um, that is no longer the same body in communion with the church in England. But as you mentioned, he's still getting, approaching the question as these are, these are other Christians, or at least the people in the pews are. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that made sense. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 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 Sure. Um, I mean, yeah, I think an important way of framing this is Hooker wants to uh, frame an account of Protestant identity that does not require the construction of the, an anti-church, uh, does not require thinking of Roman Catholicism as an anti-church against which Protestantism is the true church. And I think this, this way of, uh, this oppositional way of self-definition became quite popular from, say, you know, the 1550s onward. You definitely see it in, um, you, yeah, you definitely see it in, in kind of in Puritan theology. I mean, Puritan means so many things to different people, but, um, you know, Scottish Presbyterianism and, and, the, and, the, and the English Presbyterian tradition tends to be much more oppositional in its way it views the Church of Rome. And that's the issue with Travers, right? That's why there's this preaching debate is that Travers is scandalized that Hooker is still speaking of Roman Catholics as part of the church and as potentially, you know, able to be saved. So for, 
for Travers and many like him, the Reformation is the recovery of the true church and Rome by refusing the Reformation. Well, depends how radical you are. You know, like either, you know, Rome had been a false church for centuries and centuries and centuries. And so, you know, it's really kind of Protestantism is like life from the dead. Or maybe if you're a little more nuanced, you might say, well, you know, it was still, it was a very deeply corrupt church, but it was still sort of a church. And then, but once they refused the Reformation, then they became an anti-church, they became the church of the Antichrist and um, a synagogue of Satan. The language synagogue of Satan is from Westminster Confession, not applied directly to Roman church, but kind of by implication. So, uh, you know, Hooker wants to, stressed it's very important that protestants understand themselves to have been uh, reforming the one catholic small c catholic church that uh, they're not starting a new church they are they see themselves as a continuation of the church that there always had been but cleansed cleansed of its corruptions returned to a clearer scriptural teaching into the the better the better historic expressions of, of Christian faith. And he sees, um, you know, and so he, he first of all wants to say, our, the, the whole framing of this treatise is, could our fathers be saved? Our English, could an English, an Englishman 200 years ago, my great, great, great grandfather, right? This is very, you know, existential for them, right? Could not my great, I mean, my great, my great grandfather, they'll have to go back many generations. Could my great grandfather have been saved? Can I think of him as a Christian? I mean, he, he's in fact, it's hard for us to think ourselves into this world, not just because it's, we're not that close in time, but also we live in a much more rooted society. But you think I'm worshiping a worshiping local parish church, okay? I walk out of the church building. What do I walk past? I walk past rows of graves. What's in those gravestones? My grandfather, great grandfather, and so on, buried there, Christian burial. Uh, so the fact that they're buried in the churchyards was a way of affirming that they died in the faith. Now, as a Protestant, do I have to reject all that? Do I think that I'm walking past gravestones of people damned to hell? And Hooker wants to reassure people, no, you don't have to think that. Um, the, the medieval church is the church of our fathers, was the church of God for all of its errors. And the fact that we've brought greater light to it does not mean we sort of cut ourselves off from it. Now, the question of the church after the Reformation, the Roman church after the Reformation, is a distinct question. Hooker is going to say that there is a kind of greater accountability that comes from sinning against greater light. Uh, and we can get into this in a bit, but you know, his whole distinction of overthrowing the foundation of the faith directly versus biological consequence, um, it, it, it allows for the possibility of kind of theological errors that are held to in in ignorance and that ignorance can be um excusable ignorance but it might it might be inexcusable ignorance and he thinks that the um the leadership of the roman catholic church that has been heard what the protestants have to say and has sort of actively stopped their ears against it uh has has perhaps, you know, um, consigned themselves to perdition by that, by that rebellion. But he still doesn't think that that this that this applies to you know the entire, all the rank and file of the Catholic Church, from the Pope down to the little old lady in the pew. Right? There is still there's still room for 
uh, individual Catholic clergy and laity to be um, un, unreformed by the gospel of the Reformation, uh, and but to be to, to be in that error as a kind of uh, excusable ignorance, and therefore still um, still recognizable as Christian brothers and sisters. And I would say that's even more the case now. Uh, you know, moving forward in time, I think in many ways the Roman Catholic Church in the last 50 years has revised its teaching, so sometimes grudgingly and kind of um, pretending it's not, uh, but it has revised its teaching on a lot of these things, such that it's not obvious that the errors that were so serious in the 16th century are still so serious now on a number of points, at least. I think that, that's extremely helpful. And I think you, you mentioned this being the clearest treatise on justification from a Protestant perspective. And I think clarifying is a really um, sort of a, a good way to summarize in sort of one word what what this, the, the, the treatments of these different topics that, that Hooker gives us here really is. And a couple of them that are, that are connected that, that um, you started to touch on. One is, is Hooker's explanation of, of what he calls the foundation of the faith. And then related to that is this distinction between, as you say, the, um, or as he says, and as you just said, the people who are denying that foundation directly versus, versus by, by consequence. Um, so I'm wondering if we could t spend a little bit of time looking at what Hooker's definition is of that foundation. Um, maybe not too much time on that. Uh, and then this, this distinction between different ways of denying that foundation. And then as a consequence of that, different sort of um, judgments on that denial or those two different kinds of denial. Right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's really, it's one of these distinctions that's like, sort of like blindingly obvious when someone articulates it. And I think, and I think many people kind of operate with some kind of distinction like this intuitively, but, but I think a number of people don't articulate this distinction and it, and it leads to a lot of, a lot of sloppiness and a lot of, um, a lot of heat in theological controversy that needn't necessarily be there. So um, what Hooker says is, okay, you've got, the foundation of the faith, that which that which is sort of central to what it means to be a Christian, and that's really is quite simple. Uh, and and when the New Testament authors present, like you know, answer the question, what must I do to be saved? It's remarkable how simple and short the answers often are. And of course, there's a lot of theological argumentation down the line, you know, in the in the epistles and so on. But the implication is, it's not as if somebody needed you know, to read the entire Epistle of the Romans uh, before they could be saved. Obviously not. It was, you know, it was written to a church that had been saved, people who had been saved for decades. Right? So uh, the salvation comes through faith. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And the foundation of the faith is simply that, that belief, um, the belief that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is my only, my only hope for right standing with God something like that, some statement kind of like that. Uh, and to affirm that is sufficient. Now, where does all the rest of Christian theology come in? Then? All the rest of Christian theology basically comes in to say, what else has to be true 
in order for that foundational uh, that foundational assertion to make sense. Uh, and of course, this is where, for instance, you get the adoption of the Trinity, right? Um, the, okay, salvation is through Christ alone. Well, who is Christ? What, what kind, what must he be in order for him to be capable of being the instrument of salvation? For him to be the only mediator between God and man, turns out he has to be fully God and fully man. And so you get uh, the Nicene, De, you know, Nicene definition, the Chalcedonian definition, uh, and then the Holy Spirit is the one who applies to us the work of Christ. And you know, thinking through, what does this mean? What is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit must also be fully God. God has to be can't be three gods because uh, that would um, contradict what what Scripture says about the unity of the of of the one God. So you know, all, all these early church theological debates are essentially a way of trying to say what logically has to be true in order for the central claim to be true uh, and, 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 the, and how to fit that in with the other things that, that the Bible says about who Christ is and how he works. So, um, and then we can, we can fast forward Reformation soteriological debates are similarly, at a, they're sort of a second level of deduction saying, if salvation is by Christ alone, what does that mean for works? How do we think about works? Uh, and basically, the reformers say is, um, well, the works that we do, even aided by grace, are always incomplete uh, and always marred by sin. And so they are not a sufficient ground, even if you say, you know, it's Christ who enabled us to do those works. So it's still salvation by Christ alone because it's Christ enabling us to do those works. But um they're imperfect so they couldn't serve as a ground of right standing with god uh only only the work of christ himself fully accomplished could serve as a ground of right standing with god and that that thing fully accomplished for us can only be received by faith right? so the protestant protestant understanding of the gospel is an attempt to expound that foundation of faith to to build upon it um and to explain what it what it must actually mean okay so that's that's how hooker constructs this whole um cause of the foundation of faith so how can you go astray theologically well you could deny the foundation of faith directly you know salvation is not by jesus christ okay not that many heretics go <laughs> just go for the jugular like that uh, usually heresy consists in denying something which biological consequence would overthrow that foundation. So denying the divinity of Christ, denying the full humanity of Christ, as we saw, the, the full humanity, humanity and full divinity of Christ are actually necessary for that foundation of faith to hold together and be coherent. So if you deny one of those, then you deny the foundation by logical consequence. And what does this mean? Can you be saved if you deny the foundation by logical consequence? Well, um, by God's grace, yes, because um, people are inconsistent, right? If somebody does say to themselves, well, I can be saved by my own effort, or, you know, Jesus Christ saves, but so does, you know, so does Krishna, or whatever, um, if, then they're not a Christian, right? But if they say, no, I believe that salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone, 
Um, but you know, I don't think I don't think he's fully God in the same sense as God the Father, right? If you're um, again, there's there's sinning against different levels of light, but certainly if you're an early church Christian who the, the doctrine of Trinity hasn't been well worked out, you can hold the foundation and nonetheless believe things that logically overthrow that foundation, but you yourself haven't worked all of that out. And uh, it's very important to, to keep that distinction because I think so often in theological controversy, people very quickly go to, well, you deny this. Well, logically that would entail this, this, and this. And so uh, it, it often happens to things like over the authority of scripture, actually, you know, uh, it can be where we can move very quickly. You know, you don't believe this thing that the Bible says happened. Uh, and therefore you must not believe in the authority of the Bible. If you believe, believe in the authority of the Bible and you can't believe what the Bible says about who Christ is. And so you can't actually be a Christian, right? Um, whereas someone might not, they, they, they might say, well, I, I, I mean, I don't, I do not endorse this view, but you could say, you know, I believe the Bible is wrong about this historical fact. And yet I still believe it's completely truthful about what it says about, um, uh, the, the gospel. Therefore, you may have denied the foundation of the faith by logical consequence, but you haven't denied it directly. And through God's mercy, you can still be saved. So, um, yes, yeah, so that's the basic. I, I don't want to talk too long. But that's the basic framework as Hooker sets it up. And, and of course, you can see how he applies the justification. Roman Catholics, by denying justification by faith, ultimately commit themselves to a train of argument that under that um, undermines the foundation of faith. But to the extent that they themselves don't see that train of argument, um, we can still acknowledge them as Christian brothers. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And a really helpful explanation of um, hookers distinctions here, which I just, um, when I worked through this text, I was, you know, I was marking it up and, and putting notes in the margins, just a lot. I'm flipping through just lots of like, underlines with stars and exclamation points in the margins just thinking like like you said earlier like when someone points this kind of thing out it's like whoa this is right in front of my face the whole time like this this makes perfect sense but it's easy to uh you know to miss if you're not uh attending to it and, and paying attention to the ways that people may be denying something in two very different ways and i think this is extremely helpful for uh the world we live in, which is with, with a big emphasis on, on ecumenism and just greater opportunities because of um, a much more connected world for people across um, not just denominational lines, but different traditions and even in interfaith dialogue to recognize what you're dealing with when you're talking with someone instead of putting them in a box that you've constructed that they may or may not, um, you know, conceive of as a fair representation of their views. And I think it's amazing how, how, like you said earlier, again, how much is packed in such a short, short little book um, that has such far ranging consequences, not only for our, our own <laughs> discourses on justification, but also um, other theological controversies. Um, yeah. And uh, I just, you know, sort of to, to wrap up, I just want to say um, that, that if, if anything about this conversation has, has piqued anyone's interest, this is a fantastic um, place to go, is to, is to buy a copy of this because it's accessible, 
it's modernized very readably without sacrificing any of, of, of the content or um, any sort of, you know, compromises in terms of the presentation of the ideas. And it's, it's not expensive and it won't take you too long to work through. Um, it's, it's just not, it's not hard to get into and to see what Hooker's doing firsthand in addition to um, hearing it explained in a context like this, I just think um, is invaluable. And I'm super grateful for the work Davenant's doing and, and the publications that Davenant Press is, is putting out. Um, is there any concluding thought that we haven't touched on uh, that you want to, to share? And if not, could you just give listeners a little bit of information on where they can find not only this text, but other Davenant text or other Davenant projects? Yeah, I think we've covered the bases basically. And I, I think the, the key thing is that so often we, we toggle back and forth between uh, every doctrine matters uh, and therefore I don't know if I can, you know, have have Christian communion with you. Or, you know, we're all Christian brothers, right? So this is, you know, this, this must not, like, why are we arguing about this? It must not really matter. And Hooker gives us a way of, of saying, there's, no, there's a lot of things um, they do matter, uh, and it's if, if you are if you find yourself in a position where you're denying the foundation of faith by logical consequence, that's a big deal, and you should probably deal with that and sort through that, and that's something we're going to have to argue about. Uh, but if you genuinely genuinely believe in Jesus for your salvation, and you don't understand why I think that you are denying it, then um, then I warmly embrace you as a Christian brother, right? And so we can we can we can have that ecumenism without watering things down, um, as a sort of as a starting point for further conversation. So um, yeah, Hooker's great uh, that way in this book and and uh, throughout his works. It's kind of a theme of his is great um, being able to take differences and debates seriously um, while still contextualizing them within. Um, a shared Christian fellowship um, and, and not wanting and wanting to, you know, say, look, God is merciful to save sinners. Uh, God saves people who are um, a lot, a lot worse off than I am. And, uh, you know, God, you know God, God, first of all, God saves a sinner like me. Uh, and I've been blessed with all this, uh, you know, maybe Christian education and so on that other people haven't been. And so I should have a similar grace and mercy um, to the mercy that God has shown me. So, uh, so yeah, definitely. If you if you if you appreciate this book, check out Hooker's other writings uh, that we've started modern modernized. Preface to Book Four of his Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. You can read pretty much his whole corpus for free online. But I, you know, I do warn you, it is quite a challenge. If you're not, if you're not from, well, it's not just Elizabethan prose. Hooker has a very distinctive style of Elizabethan prose, which is can be quite challenging. Uh, and then we have we have about 35 different titles in print at the Davenant Institute, uh, davenantinstitute.org. We just launched a brand new website where you can see all of our resources, you know, clearly laid out there. there our publishing house, Davenant Press, our quarterly magazine, Ad Fontes, has its own website. Uh, you can access all of it though through the main site. Uh, Davenant Hall, um, our theological education arm, and then Davenant House, our residential study center. So. Um, yeah, give us a follow on Twitter and, and check out the new website. And uh, I hope this book and others will be uh, valuable for you in your Christian journey. 
Yeah, definitely. Can't recommend following up and, and checking out those links enough. We'll, we'll definitely put links to all, all that we've talked about, um, the book, as well as Dobbinant website and all that in the show notes below. Uh, once again, Dr. Littlejohn, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your time. We've really appreciated it. And um, I'm really excited to, to get this episode out there. And um, thank you for listening to this episode, tuning in today of the Doxology Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter at Doxology Podcast. Also look for um, Brad Littlejohn and um, the Davenant Institute at Fontes. Again, links all down below on Twitter. Um, or you can shoot us an email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com if you've got any feedback or questions or ideas for future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. And um, a final thank you to you, Dr. Littlejohn, and I hope you have a great, great rest of your day and rest of your week. Thank you.